Welcome to the Theater of the Midnight Sun, a 21st century stage for stories, with your host and author, Michael McGee. This is Michael McGee, and at this venue you'll hear stories of mystery, history, fantasy, farce, sci-fi, spy-fi, the everyday, and the absurd. Usually the stories heard here are performed by a bunch of regular Joes, just friends and colleagues, who in their mild-mannered day jobs are everything from accountants to winery consultants. But for this episode, we proudly present some real live local actors who put upstart spear holders like your host to shame. So settle in, get comfy, and enjoy the upgrade as we begin the next story episode on this, The Theater of the Midnight Sun. Frustrated with a society that has taken make believe a little too seriously, one man plots to bring it to its knees in the short story, Goodbye, Cruel World. Okay, listen up, loser. Yeah, I'm talking to you. What, you gotta look around? There's nobody else in the house. And believe me, you won't find me. I'm too good at my work. So plant your candy ass on the nearest hobby horse and pay attention. Who knows, you might actually learn something. After all, I used to be just like you. And I think you deserve a little bedtime story. Something to keep you awake at night. And trust me, it's better this than something else. Keep that in mind. Now, my name used to be Lester Melrose. Not that you'd have ever heard of me, but I'm sure you'd know me these days. That is, if you ever got a good look at me. But we make sure that never really happens. Anyway, I was Lester Melrose. And I was a schmuck just like everybody else, except that I knew it. I knew it every day I went to work at the Sugar and Spice and Everything Nice Company down on Gumdrop Way. I knew it every time I shelled out my hard-earned Spanish doubloons for Old King Cole's putrid blackbird pies whenever my big-shot boss invited himself over for dinner. I knew it right up to the moment I made that fateful decision, the one that changed my life forever the moment I decided to bump off Santa Claus. The real one. Something had to be done, and somebody had to do it. Trust me, it wasn't anything personal. Even though, I do have to admit, he did have something to do with my wife leaving me. But no need to go into that. Knocking off the jolly old fat man wouldn't be just for me either. It'd be for everybody. Of course, I knew it wouldn't be easy, particularly since real firearms were all but extinct. Just the same, I didn't need any traditional weapon. I knew exactly what would deep-six the guy. I was one of the few who did, given my job at Sugar and Spice, which is why I believe the you-know-whos had me in their sights right from the start. Problem was getting close enough to use my secret weapon. The morning I left, I loaded it into a thermos placing the little red cup on top like nothing unusual was inside. Which, of course, was entirely true. After hiding the thermos under some clothes in my briefcase, I bypassed my front door and shimmied out a side window, heading for my car. 
I plan to push the thing to the corner before starting it, and then make a beeline to the train station. Unfortunately, in the end, well, let's just say it wasn't a clean getaway. All this, thankfully, with still no sign of sassafras. I'd purposely scheduled my exit an hour earlier that morning to throw off the big doofus. He'd already trashed half my house, and I'd given him strict orders never to set foot in my lawn again. I paused at the fence's edge, studying every house and tree, trying to figure which one might hold an ambush. I made a dash for the car. I leapt over the trunk onto the other side, right onto a ten-foot lump of shiny blue scales. Sassafras rubbed his eyes awake. The dragon had camped out beside my car door. Oh, morning, Lefter. Beautiful day, isn't it? His morning breath smelled like the funk of 40,000 locker rooms. I rolled off him, coughing, as he bounced to his feet, his wiry little wings flapping furiously. Then I saw the dragon prince on my car, and the frickin' dents. God damn it! Sassafras was already running to hide. Come back here, you! Like so many stray cats, Sassafras loved the hood's warmth after the engine had run a while. Football-sized imprints cratered my car. How many times have I told you to keep away from this car? So, um, are you going to work? As usual, master of the subtle change of subject. I smiled, realizing that I'd overlooked an incredible opportunity to inflict some lasting emotional damage on the geek dragon, simply by telling him the truth. No sassafras, I'm leaving to go rub out Santa Claus. What do you think of that? There was a sad little silence, and I half expected him to start crying. Can I help? Just then, I heard another dread voice, all too familiar to me. Are you less? What's shaking? I wheeled around to see Corny, the chain-smoking unicorn. He was the size of a Shetland pony, was half gangster, half con man, and liked having his horn touched in a sordid sort of way. Like the idiot dragon, he'd been made to desire human companionship, no matter how nauseating it might be to both sides. We're gonna rub out Santa Claus! We are. Guess you got more promise than I thought, Les. Are you gonna off the old man? Take him in the gut? Make him pay for all them lumps of coal? We're not getting rid of Santa Claus. The Ditz Dragon's faculties have gone AWOL again. Oh, they has, has they? Corny took a melodramatic drag from the cigarette clamp between his yellowed teeth. Then why are you splitting for work so early, Les? You're a late riser, remember? Uh, I got work. Extra work to do. You know, down at the office. Man, you couldn't fool a day-old filly with that. Up yours. <laughs> I turned and opened the now-mangled door of my turbo-special soapbox racer, tossed my briefcase inside, and started the engine. Hearing the motor rev, Sassafras, fearing I'd leave him behind, came bouncing after the car like a demented ballerina. I floored it. So tell me, my dear little lame do I look like an idiot? Strike that. You'd need a visual, and it isn't policy. Until it's too late, anyway. For you. Therefore, permit me to rephrase. Do I sound like an idiot? Ten to one, I do. 
And believe me, it's going to get a lot worse as the story goes on. You see, about a year earlier, I made a magnificent mistake. One of my biggest. It came a few weeks after Sassafras started hanging around my house, back when my wife still lived there. The dragon was always cutting out strings of paper hearts, even tried to compose love sonnets. Though I don't think he ever got past roses or red, no matter how many times I fed him the second line. He was a hopeless romantic. Mostly just hopeless. My wife took pity on him more than me, constantly protective. Meanwhile, I got all his admiration, probably because I had a wife. Outside in our yard, he'd spend hours practicing for dates with no one, laying coats across mud puddles, my coats, damn it, learning the loot for future serenades to his significant other, or setting up elaborate candlelit dinners before accidentally burning down the table along with two of our trees. My wife even helped him plant a garden in back, brimming with red roses for his bouquets. All he really wanted was a girl dragon, someone to share sunsets with, someone he could spoil with his god-awful half-finished poetry. The trouble was, he wasn't even a boy dragon. They had no gender. They didn't make biopeds that way, at least not his class, which is where I made my mistake. Since I worked at Sugar and Spice, I told him that if he just kept his grimy paws off my things, I'd request they make a few bona fide females. Sassafras felt indebted, forever after toddling after me like a wrecking ball with wings, laying waste to everything I owned, from my liquor cabinet to my power tools. Ah, but I digress. Hoping I'd lost Sassafras, I parked my car at the train station, just as a herd of Pegasus flew overhead. The last place you want to be is outside during one of their flybys, but at least they got the car, not me. I sighed and tossed the keys back through the dirtied window, the stink already atrocious, basically willing my sad soapbox racer to the next poor slob who needed her bad enough to conduct restorations. After all, once I stepped onto that train, chances were I'd never see my car or house again. I picked up my ticket to the North Pole. Along the way, enduring a deluge of syrupy drivel from the Ticketmaster about Santa and the little choo-choo train the fat guy had given the poor dork last year. And even more rubbish about the clauses oh-so-magnificent elves. Just what I needed. I desperately wanted to tell him to grow up or act your age. Two of my most oft-used phrases lately. But refrain from doing so. Because, you know, I'm a sweetheart. Anyway... I scanned the platform and sighed gratefully. Still no sign of Sassafras or the one-horn wonder. I tucked the ticket in my coat and headed for the train when I noticed something strange beside the station house. Movement in the shadows. Or at least I thought I saw something. It gave me the creeps and I froze, studying the building edges. If it was government B-men, they were playing it pretty cool. For the moment, I figured I'd better stay chilled, too. The downside was, Santa's workshop was a long haul, and train rides always did a number on me, knocking me out like a baby. That's the worst thing you can do with B-men around, not off. You're never more vulnerable. Nervously navigating the crowds, I boarded the Big Rock Candy Special with five minutes to spare. Her every window was framed by frosted glass, draped in lace, and lit by gas lamp. She was pure Americana, with brass bands and lemonade stands spotting her platform. 
I planted myself in a train seat. There was an awkward heave of the cars, a potent chug or two, and the Big Rock Candy Special ambled out of the station. I think I literally clapped my hands together. Sassafras and company had missed the boat, or train as it were, and soon the cars were rumbling down the line quicker than a unicorn's best gallop. I was blessedly alone. This called for a celebration, and I whistled for the porter. Hey, you serve martinis? No, sir, not aboard this train. Then make it a beer. And none of that ginger beer either, understand? I'll see what I can do, sir. Right after I ordered, though, I began doubting my luck, which had been at a serious ebb lately, starting with my wife leaving me two months before. That alone had been crushing. I couldn't get out of bed, couldn't go to work. My last dregs of faith in this brave new nuthouse of ours, gone. Wenda was her name. She was a leggy Rita Hayworth type, with a thing for short guys. And me being four foot ten, it was a perfect combo. Sometimes, on nights out, she'd even put on her highest heels just to amplify our differences. Sure, I could lose my temper when she was around, couldn't help it in our wacko world, but I never lost it with her. More importantly, I loved her. Even worse, I still do. I studied the train compartment. The only passenger outside myself was a little old lady draped in needlework at the back of the coach. She looked up at me, smiled a grandmother grin, then returned to her embroidery. The porter returned a moment later, an elegant tray in her hand, an equally elegant glass of something on top. Your order, sir. This better not be a Shirley Temple. Simple white wine, sir. I took a satisfying sip, then realized the woman was waiting payment. I dug through my pockets, but failed to come up with anything substantial until Corny dropped 20 bucks of change into my lap. Paid a dame less. I leapt from my chair, dumping the change and nearly the wine. What? How'd you... Sassafras was so happy he was drooling all over me. All part of a warm, wet hug from him. We almost missed the train, Lester. Off me, pinhead. God, Lester, you were driving so quick in your car. You forgot. We can't run that fast. Oh, you'd be surprised how good my memory is. Here, stash this too. Corny angled his horn toward me. Dangling from its end was a dainty bracelet lined with opals the size of real pinheads. Corny, where'd you find that? Got it off the old bag and back. Oh, geez, give me that. I snatched it from his horn. What? She'll be belly up in a few years anyhow. I'll grow up, would ya? And I headed off to return the bracelet to the little old lady. The porter was still waiting for her money, and I told her to take whatever was on the floor, despite Corny's considerable objections. Hey, what are you doing? We worked hard for that. Got no respect for crime. I found out later the gruesome twosome had rifled one of the vending machines on the train platform. Afterward, Sassafras had gathered up their plunder, just as Corny had taught him, tucking it in his blue-scaled kangaroo-like pouch. Of course, dragons like Sassafras weren't designed to drag off helpless princesses or wage war with clanky knights. They were meant to be mascots at football games, guests at children's parties, loving pets. But Sassafras had a problem. I don't know if it had been a bona fide mistake or some demented joke by the scientists, 
but no dragon rolling off the biogenetic assembly lines was ever meant to actually breathe fire. Unfortunately for me and my ping pong table, not to mention my baseball card collection and just about everything else flammable in my house, Sassafras and others of his bioped class could. Worse yet, he was a closet pyro. The flames fascinated him. I caught him a couple times toasting the back of my garage. So afterwards, I made it a ritual every evening to walk the grounds with a baseball bat to keep him away. What I called my dragon repellent. When the Bureau of Make-Believe finally figured out what had happened, they issued an edict to round up all the dragons in Sassafras's class in order to put them to sleep like dogs at the pound. Because of this, Corny had taken the dragon under his wing, or hoof, rather, trying to keep him out of sight until things cooled down. Which was difficult at best with Sassafras, being he was 10 feet tall and a complete klutz. Guess they moved your office onto the train today, huh, Les? Both of you, Amscray, beat it. No can do, Les. We's riding the rails with you. Wrong. Sure, Sass boy and me, we cannot let you get into no trouble, see? It would be most unfortunate, and we would feel terrible hurt if something was to happen to us. Yes, terrible hurt. Did it ever occur to you that I might want to be alone? Well, can't see that happening anytime soon. I figures you got B-men after years already. <coughs> Who said anything about boogeymen? Well, just goes to figure less. Twice in the last ten seconds you've peeped over your shoulder, and people don't go around sweating bullets on the big rock unless they think they're headed for a bigger rock like Alcatraz, so you might as well come clean. Why? Cause we can help you. For a cut, of course. Yeah, Lefter! I don't need your help. Oh, really? Yes, really. I'm of another opinion, Les. But we'll toss that round later. Right now, all I want to know is, what's your angle? My angle? My angle? Look! You want to know why I'm doing this? You really want to know? Because of you two. Because of this whole world turned upside down screwy. In the old days, parents raised their kids in dream worlds, spoon-feeding them fairy tales and happy endings, only to see their toddler's eyes rudely opened to all the injustice in the world, all the hatred and unkindness. Suddenly, little Bobby and Becky discovered that good didn't always win, and that people didn't always care. They became disappointed, disillusioned, both with their world and with mummy and daddy, breeding rebellion. But don't you think getting smart with their old man was just part of turning independent? Sure, but that wasn't everything. By 16, most were hell-bent on changing the world, partly because it wasn't the world they'd been told it was. Even better, each new generation of tots wasn't buying into the racket quite as long as the last the infection of reality beginning earlier and earlier. After a while, moms and dads wanted some tangible proof to show their kids to delay reality and rebellion. And then they seen their chance. Precisely. Thanks to the miracles of bioengineering, parents found they could put off the inevitable, get rid of mean old reality altogether. So now we live as eternal children, where life's a non-stop dream, an endless stroll down Sugar Plum Lane. Even worse, it's a world that doesn't even work right. Look at you two. Rejects. Total losers. Good for nothing but getting in people's way. Nobody wants you around. The dragon and the unicorn looked at each other then, their eyes dimming. 
and I immediately regretted what I'd said. Screw me. But we can still help you, can't we, Lester? I sighed. No matter what I said or did, I knew both Sassafras and Corny would do their damnness to assist me, even if the outcome meant the end of their kind and themselves. I hated it. So you think often the fat guy? Look, in the old days, in so many societies, one of the first hard reality checks came with the demise of a certain Christmas icon. And so you plans to pull it off for real? You betcha. It'll be the psychological kick in the head that finally wakes him up, that causes our whole frickin' society to grow up again. And you think they're just gonna let you waltz in and off the guy? They got security systems up the wazoo. I oughta know. I studied the joint's layout. Hell, Santa's workshop? What a haul. <laughs> Give me a break. Corny always talked big, but in truth, he was small time. Real small. Prank phone call small. And using my phone, damn it. He only dreamed of bigger operations. Mm-hmm. Try to follow along here, cornball. I don't need your help. And especially yours, Sassafras. You tell him, Hornhead. If the authorities catch him, he's dragging casserole. Sassafras had been studying his reflection in the windows, licking his paws and smoothing out the platinum locks he'd perfectly parted down the center. He was big on good grooming, having seen one too many of those crappy old 1950s school hygiene films like Mr. Clean and Mr. Popular, They Can Both Be You and other puke-prompting titles. Sassafras figured it just another way to win a girl's heart. Something that left him constantly sniffing his armpits, gargling, what little good it did, or conducting his own pedicures. Trying to look quote-unquote classy, he'd even outfitted himself in bow tie and dicky, his current attire. Catherine? Sassafras, you cannot go around in public. It is not safe for you. Fast boy will be fine. I'll look after him. What are you talking about? You're the one that keeps telling him to hide out at my place. Thank you so much. Until the heat blows over. Therefore, neither you nor he gets to play sidekick today. So go home. Pardon a moi, Les. But maybe we ought to review a few things here. Okay. First, Santa's workshop is booby-trapped, right? Senses everywhere. So? So you takes anything in there stronger than a pop gun, and they're gonna take you down. Right. Second, rumor has it there ain't no way to whack the big guy anyways. Some say even if you puts a pound of lead in him, it would barely phase him. His organs is all different, special variety bioclass or something, so you don't know where his soft spots are. Yes, go on. Third, even if you pulls off the job, what makes you think the Bureau of Make-Believe ain't gonna have another Santy stuffin' stockings ten minutes later? Mm-hmm. So as I figures, you got some kind of in. Uh-huh. You know something, don't you, Les? You found something lethal to the big guy. Something so debilitating, you think it'll deep-six the fat man and the whole works for keeps. Come on, out with it. I don't know what you're talking about. Really? So you're saying it ain't got nothing to do with that thermos in your briefcase? Cause there sure ain't coffee in it. <laughs> I spilled my wine all over the floor and me. I signaled the porter for another glass. Three, actually. What's in the thermos, Lester? 
I stood up, trying to quiet the dragon through the quaint notion of two hands around his throat. Corny, how the hell do you know about the thermos? Hey, see this horn? I can put a peephole wherever I want. I've seen the same reports you did. Classified top secret stuff, eh? Mysteriously found their way into your briefcase last week? Yeah, right. And that's why the feds is after you right now. W what report? The Santa Recall. That report. The one what says there's a fatal flaw in the fat guy's design? The same one what says they won't have the new improved version lined up for three more weeks? Too perfect to pass up, eh, Les? <coughs> I could feel Federal B-men closing in on me already, tightening their murky dragnet. My blood pressure pounded as my face turned slick with sweat, just before I passed out cold. Unconscious, I dreamed of the boogeymen. Dreamed of them coming after me from under every dark table, from behind every shadowy pillar. And though scared of my skivvies, I managed to evade them, smiling as I leapt from one perverse adventure to another, deflowering innocent fairy princesses, sewing Peter Pan's shadow to him with a nail gun, gleefully roasting Mother Goose's feathery friend over a spit. I awoke as the train jolted to a stop, its cylinders issuing a final sigh of steam. Both Corny and Sassafras had vanished. And so concludes part one of Goodbye, Cruel World. This is Michael McGee, and for this story I let others take the reins of most of the vocal work. In fact, almost all the performances here were uh, by a terrific group of San Francisco area actors called Ragged Wing Ensemble, whose members include Keith Davis, who played Lester Melrose in this episode, Jeffrey Hoffman, who was Sassafras, Amy Sass, and Anna Schneiderman, who played the train porter. They'll be back in the second episode of Goodbye, Cruel World as well. You can find more information about them at their website at www.raggedwing.org. Now, the music that was used in this episode was provided by a vast array of incredible artists and musicians like Gringo Motel, the Heftone Banjo Orchestra, Lynn and Brian Heffernan and the Fabulous Heftones, Lee Harris, Brain Bucket, Clouseau, and Mindy Smith. The music and special effects for these episodes were courtesy of CC Mixter, Magnatune, Internet Archive, the Arizona State University website, Podsafe Music Network, GarageBand at garageband.com, Podsafe Audio, and SoundSnap. All the song and music titles and the names of the artists heard in this episode can be found on the music page at the Theater of the Midnight Sun website at theaterofthemidnightsun.podbean.com. Check back or click that old subscribe button or follow us to be notified about the release of the next episode. Until then, this is Michael McGee saying, no need to wake Shakespeare or bother Mark Twain. It's just us, the theater of the Midnight Sun. <laughs>